Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. My name is Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp, and I'm your host. The previous series explored Peter Block's six conversations. For this series of episodes, we're speaking with practitioners who are using these conversations in the world. Today, Brad Wise and Joey Taylor speak with Yabom Gilpin-Jackson. My name is Yabom Gilpin-Jackson. Yabom like home is what I tell people. And I am calling you from the traditional ancestral unceded territories of the Katsi and Quintland people in an area called Maple Ridge in British Columbia, Canada. This is currently where is home for me. I identify as both Sierra Leonean and Canadian as a global African in the world. We jump into the conversation as Yabomsa describes how she uses story, questions, and Peter's work to spark action in the world. What you said about trying to turn this into action makes a lot of sense to me because that is absolutely how I use story and questions of connection in my work. I said Peter's was one piece that fit into the puzzle. The other is Richard and Emily Axelrod have this term, the terms of engagement. And in their, their work on terms of engagement, they have this term connection before content that really stuck with me and framed a lot of my practice with story. Because for me, the deepest, easiest way to connect people is to connect them to their own resonance stories and then to each other's resonance stories. And starting from that place of deep connection to move into often difficult work around co-creating actions. So a typical process that I use is I think about complex work that we're trying to co-create action around in sort of three cycles, the cycle of sort of understanding our current um, narratives, and then the second cycle of connecting to resonance, and the third cycle of uncovering possibilities and new narratives. So I very much like in the arc of using story and narrative for transformative action, those are the three things that I do. So in understanding current narratives and often current difficult or traumatic narratives, it's really making space for people to tell the stories about the current reality that is sitting with them, whatever that is, and to help them get present to that and unpack that and then move from that to their resonance stories. Well, what are the stories that deeply connect you to why this current context or this issue or this whatever it is matters? And then doing that deep dive into resonance stories. However, for me, both those things are in the context of moving into action. So the third cycle is always basically in the context of your resonance stories and the connection that's emerging between resonance stories here what is the new narrative that we want to create? And then based on that, I go into what people would consider classic strategic planning that says, if we want to create, this is what the, the new narrative that's emerging for us out of all these ways we've connected to resonance and to each other, then you know we co-create actions. What are the actions that we're going to take to create this world that we want? So that I would say is very sort of typically, classically, how I move from story and connection to action. I was going to ask a question, like when you have folks come up with what their new narrative is together, 
what are things that like make that really challenging or the flip side? What are things that you found that like really help people do that together in the moment? What helps is the prior having each of them worked on their own resonance story. I think a lot of times the struggle for language or to create a narrative has to do with people not feeling like theirs is represented. What has worked for me anyway is giving that space for, I really believe in transformation needs to happen at every level. Every individual in that space needs to transform as much as the group. So making that space for individual resonance storytelling and sharing and uncovering. And then when you go from there to what's the common thread that has emerged, people are less likely to get positional around Oh, but if we go with that thread, then you haven't heard my story or my story hasn't been told. It is sometimes hard to land on. And we do our like naming of stories, right? So in that cycle of getting people to share their current narratives that they want to transform, I worked with a group once that called their current or dominant narrative the screen. I don't know why that stuck with me, but <laughs> they called it the scream. And I can't even remember what they wanted to transform their narrative to, but they come up with another name for the alternative narrative that's emerged from the sharing and the resonance. We find language for it, and I'm very clear that the language to serve as a resonance trigger, quite frankly, for people. When things start getting difficult and people start diverging and polarizing, it's like, wait a second, we're going for this narrative. What would that narrative require of us this moment? So what I would say I found, I wouldn't say difficult, but what I found does happen is the retracting after the you know, the resonance thing has people on that positive high of possibility. Once you start moving into action, it can get really difficult and polarizing. But resonance stories in itself and that collective narrative, you can return people there simply by saying, hey, wait a second, if that's the narrative we're going for, what does that require of us in this moment? Now you can go back to some of those Peter Block questions and other ones that I've just added on top of it, like what courage does that require of us now, right? Like, yes, this is hard, this is returning us to the screen. It's not taking us to this other one over here that we're trying to create. I've had people say, you know, a narrative of reconnection. It's been easier for people to come up with the thematic narrative they want, as long as they've done the individual work. Occasionally, I think we haven't landed, but I've been clear that the intent behind trying to name a narrative is really to give them a locus to focus on for what it is they're co-creating. So I think there's been sometimes we haven't named the alternative narrative just because there were too many different options and people were getting stuck on it's this and not that in language. And I just stop it. Like I don't let that escalate too far. If it doesn't easily merge, and when I say easily, I don't mean because it's easy. If there's not ease around something's clearly bubbling up, then I just say, this is where we're going. And I find some kind of you know, placeholder to, to remind people this is the North Star. So we're going North and then I'll just talk about it that way because I'm not going to give them language if they don't come up for it, but I will find a generic way to refer to that possibility, that possible future. One of the questions I had when you were describing narrative was like, what do you do when you're like, that's not good enough, <laughs> you know, or that, that doesn't have what you're going to need to really do what you want to do. Like how, how do you manage that? Give me an example. 
I don't know if everybody knows what a good narrative is, is what I was wondering. Do you lay that out there? Like, okay, you're going to come up with a new narrative and what a narrative needs is bing, bang, boom. Or do you just let them figure it out? I work a lot with, with high schoolers and very often when we're yeah. doing this like alternative narrative kind of work. They're running through scripts that they've that they have heard before. No judgment here. I have my own scripts that are shallow as well, but they're maybe not completely owned. It's kind of like what they think I want to hear, or maybe a script that they've heard talked about a ton of times, but they don't really care about that much. It doesn't really have the oomph that you, you're going to need in order to actually do something about it. Do you care about this though? That's for me what it often looks like. Yeah, I love that. I don't get technical about story because I enter this work very much from we're story making beings. We all have a story or we want to have a story. I think, Joey, I haven't thought about what you just said, but I just recalled I have worked with high schoolers and I've worked with young adults using this methodology and resonance stories in particular. Part of what I do with the dominant narrative is, you know, they throw all the stuff, right? Including all the stuff they hear. And in fact, how I frame the question is I just say, what do they say about the current narrative of X, Y, Z, whatever it is. And of course they throw all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. And then I say, who says that, right? So it becomes a really interesting conversation about who are the voices and they get to name all the voices. But we end that with, I just keep saying who else and who else until somebody says, well, we just did. And I think that part of it in terms of getting people to the point of owning that we are all part of creating the narratives that we live in. And actually we have agency to choose which narratives we want to be dominant in our lives. So that's part, it's embedded in the process to challenge that very thing that you're talking about. The ideas of, yeah, we're all socially constructed. We're born into society, whether we like it or not. We're born into families. Yes, some circumstances better than others. We're institutionalized super quickly. We're social beings. So we live in stories, both the ones we sniff and just carry on with and the ones that we choose. The other thing I often do is to this conversation that you both brought up is start often with a reading. It's not necessarily something that says what is story, but it very much is like there's an art piece, like I read a piece of a poem. There's a poem I really like to read around we fallen into story. And then the other one is except from one of the old encyclopedias of leadership that talks about basically leadership as small l everyday leadership and the fact that in order to lead we we have to first understand what stories were a part of uh, what is the story that we've entered and before we can answer what is mine to do in that story we must first understand what story or stories are we a part there's a long excerpt that I often read and that frames Brad the whole, what do I mean by story and what stories am I looking for? So I typically do that as well, like as a just opening to the session. And then I say, we're going to talk about stories, the stories we're in and how they impact us. And we're going to unpack some stories and we're going to co-create other ones. This is poem 142 by Julianne Oakwood Bytek. We've fallen into story, and inside story, this is all there is. This is all there is. This is all there is. This is all we fall. 
we fall. We fall into lightness, into being, brightness, into flight. This is all there is. This is all there is. This is all there is. This is becoming what they wanted us to be. Coming into becoming into being. Who are we? Who are we? Who are we again? Now let's return. Here's Brad. It's interesting to hear you talk because I hadn't thought about in our context of how important it might be for each member to come with some awareness of what their own narrative is. And then the invitation for them to create a new one together. Yeah, why are they there? What do they want? This is not a block question. This is an Axel Rod question, but I love it so much. What would be different in the world because they've gathered? Because if nothing's going to be different, then why are they getting together and spending the hours in community together? Like, what's the point? It's a question I ask groups a lot. What would be different in the world because we're gathered here? Do you think the action has to be localized? Do you think it could work if they're not, if they're like scattered about the globe? Like, could they still have an action together that would be meaningful and make a difference? Or do you think it needs to be people in one location? It's an interesting one because I really, really, really believe in or else I make myself believe because otherwise I I despair (laughs) in the power of in the world of systems, in the power of fractals and and different parts of the system can do different things. And if it's all to the same end, it's all meaningful. It will all go somewhere. That whole seed planting, you don't know which one's gonna (laughs) grow something, just do your own bit and get out of the way. From that lens, I really believe that we don't only have to do localized work. And I know Peter really believes this at some point, like it has to be localized and people that can actually do something. I agree to an extent, but I think to the exclusion of planting seeds that can go broader, we're missing something. The example I often give is me and a couple of colleagues really thinking about different leadership questions and African leadership in particular, me and two other women with what I call global African identities, really wanting to do something about it, but we're in three different parts of the world, often traveling between different continents and trying to have this conversation. And sometimes feeling the pressure to let's just do our localized thing and maybe just be peer supports for each other. We, we almost went there at some point. But actually, ultimately, what we ended up doing is doing a collaborative project together in which we've now completed two book volumes of edited stories of everyday African leaders. We're on the third one, and we've brought together communities of leaders locally and virtually that are all like leaders across different industries, but all taking on things that they're self-organizing for broader impact and hosted them in dialogue together to inspire further action, just to create connection. We've done that virtually. We've done that locally, like 
on the continent in Mozambique, in South Africa, in Nigeria. I've done conversations here in Canada. And that all started out of like a similar question. Is it possible to scale and have any kind of impact if we're not localized? That's not how we asked the question, but it was part of our conversations. And I would say if we hadn't pushed past thinking locally, we wouldn't have done any of the things that we've now done. And it has included collecting stories of everyday leaders to sort of counter the narrative of African leadership only looks one way and not the many multiple ways that it does. I can see very definitively that this work, that's sharing stories, all they are are resonant stories. By the time we do this next one, we'll have collected over 100 and we still don't live anywhere close and we still don't get together every year. The thing that really struck me about the way you started is I often feel like Peter's work doesn't address the systemic larger kind of stuff because it's so intent on being localized. But it seems like you are intent on like, no, we're going to have this effect kind of every part of the scale. How have you been able to navigate that? It's an interesting question. And I think for me, it's also part of my identity. I was born in Germany. I grew up in Sierra Leone in West Africa. And then I've lived in Canada the longest part of my life. And I've gone to school in the U.S., All that to say, I don't only wear a local lens, like in any community, I'm an insider, outsider. In fact, I'm an insider, outsider in all my communities. Like I can tell you that decisively, (laughs) not because I want to be, but because of these lines that we've created around what identity is or isn't and who's in or who's not. I'm technically a third culture kid, but I'm not. Like I was born outside the continent of my parents' heritage But I went back there young enough and long enough that I wouldn't be considered having grown up outside of the culture of my parents. But over there, they barely consider me Ceredionian, even though the definition is by male family heritage. And my father and grandfather and all of those are Ceredionian. But the minute now you're not born there, there's this other sub-narrative, right? So I'm inside the outsider there. I'm inside the outsider in North America. I'm, <laughs> I'm inside the outsider in immigrant community. I'm inside the outsider in first-generation Canadian community. So for me, what is local? Where I grew up is not where I live. <laughs> where I live is not always where I call home. So what is local? Is that driving you to create belonging, that sense of being insider, outsider? You You know, what's funny is I don't struggle for identity belonging at all. Like I'm very comfortable in my skin. I'm very comfortable calling myself both African and Canadian. And I'm not going to lie. I think that's unique because I coach a lot of people that struggle for belonging that have some of the same kinds of experiences and others like multiracial people who are like, okay, no one wants me. Where do I fit? (laughs) Right. I don't struggle for that. And I think personally for me, that's the strength of my identity. And I don't know how that happened completely other than, you know, I have my theories about my parents and who they were and how they showed up and that kind of thing. And I have really strong family support. I have lots of siblings and all that stuff. Right. But I think what that does is I never only see things as one thing. And I really, I think, push against binaries, including what is local, because what is local? 
And what's local for me today is not local for me tomorrow. Like even in BC, I've moved communities. I just moved again. And it's funny, I was thinking about this because I had started things in that other community and now I'm not there anymore. So, you know, is local now in this new community that I am or do I keep being local over there? I think it all depends on context. And so for me, I would much rather say, how could we be both local and global? How can I both shift into supporting my current local community, but stay connected to that other community if and as it serves? If they had a need to say, hey, you know, come do a talk and tell us why we were doing this, why you started this conversation when you're here, you know, just to give us the pep to get going. Of course, I'll do that. I'm not local there anymore, but I'll go do it. (laughs) If it includes hosting a community, the structure of belonging conversation in that community, why wouldn't I do do it? It's like part of my ecosystem of where I have the possibility to have some impact, whatever that is, knowing that some things will be seeds. And in some places I'll be growing a garden (laughs) for a while. But again, I just like the ecology analogy because I can grow the garden, but then I can move and go be local somewhere else. And if I've done this well, you know, hopefully somebody else will tend it or it will bear whatever fruits it bears. And even if it dies out, we know it's never dead because, you know, it's gone back into the earth somewhere. So I just worry about what's the right thing to do in this context. What's the right conversation to have? I do care a lot about inspiring leadership action is what I call it. I don't want to only inspire people. My personal why is to inspire leadership action in the peoples and communities that I serve. That's it. If you're only inspired by me, I haven't done my job. If I've inspired you to think differently or do something differently that I might hear about five years from now, then I've planted a good seed, right? I'm not holding on to that outcome. I don't know where it's going to go, but what I want is to inspire leadership action. Thanks for listening. You can find more about Yabom in the conversations in the show notes. Also, our next Abundant Community Conversation will be with Jen Hoos Rothberg on November 15th. You can find the registration link in the show notes as well. This episode has been hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlinshamp, and it's been produced by the amazing Joey Taylor. My music is from Jeff Foreman.